0: Nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation. The aftermath of violence is bitterness. And this is the thing I'm concerned about. Let us fight passionately and unrelentingly for the gold of justice and freedom. Let us be sure that our hands are clean in the struggle. Let us never fight with falsehood and violence and hate and malice, but always fight with love so that when the day comes that the walls of segregation have completely crumbling, Montgomery, that we will be able to live with people as our brothers and sisters.
1: 902, good morning, I'm John Shack, and this is the Beloved Community, Resources for Activism. You hear the Beloved Community every second Friday on KBOO from 9 to 10 a.m., and i'm glad we have a big show here last uh, last month was kind of a fun drama here uh, my guest was was canceled by staff that uh, decision is being appealed but the show goes on today and i have four uh, very important guests uh, jeremy roth Cushell is on the phone with me he was arrested in a library in kansas city missouri for free speech the librarian came to defend him and he was arrested we got that exciting story coming up, uh, and that's going to be our first story. Then I also have uh, with me in the studio Lynn Neely from the Workers' World Party, and she's going to talk about a big action that is happening across the country, including tomorrow uh, in Portland against U.S. wars at home and abroad. We're going to talk about that. Also with me is uh, Brett Webb Mitchell, and Brett is uh, an openly gay Presbyterian minister pastor of the community of pilgrims presbyterian church in portland and uh, just been named the uh, lgbtq plus advocacy coordinator for the oregon idaho conference of the united methodist church and so we're going to talk about that important work and then i also have nicole Carreri, and she is one of the leading speakers in the country really on behalf of shia islam and she's going to talk about uh, her work in christian muslim relations and uh Hoping to connect with Jeremy, is that he's going to be coming up in just a second. So let's let's go ahead and 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 start with you, Lynn. Do you mind getting getting right up there? Let's put uh, Lynn on uh, the red microphone. Welcome.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me, John.
1: Lynn Neely is a member of the Workers World Party. And I know nothing about you except for your email that I happen to see on a website about a big action tomorrow, the United Day of Action Against U.S. Wars at Home and Abroad. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. When and where, first of all, in Portland?
0: Okay. It's tomorrow, Saturday, at at Waterfront Park, the War Memorial, the um, Battleship Memorial. It's at 1 o'clock. And it's going to be a rally. um, And the... Uh, with 12 speakers Oh,
1: twelve 12 speakers who, who yeah. are some of those speakers do you know
0: people talking about different countries and addressing the lies that the media is spreading about countries like Syria Venezuela the Philippines the DPRK the Ukraine and Yemen and then we have a dynamic um, community organizer from don't shoot Portland black lives matter who's going to talk about the war in our communities and the need to build ties between people in communities and neighborhoods to defend ourselves against the racist police in the state, which is also you know, war, a war of aggression.
1: So these are wars at home and yes, abroad is yes. the focus of this. Right. Who started this? Who set this up?
0: A group called UNAC, the United uh, National Anti-War Coalition. And uh, there's huge demonstrations in um, big cities across the country. And Portland's going to also, we're gonna have one here, so, Workers' World is part of UNAC.
1: So, it's going to start there at at the waterfront park, and there's going to be speeches there, and then it's going to be a march to um, uh, Saturday market. Is that right?
0: Yes. Afterwards, we're gonna we have a leaflet that's that has some facts about Syria, uh, alternate facts that you won't get on the media, normal media, um, that we're going to hand out to people at uh, Saturday market. Yeah.
1: Syria. It's right in the news right now of of whether or not uh, Trump's sending tweets about how tough he is, and then he backs (laughs) off a little bit. And what's the situation?
0: Well, uh, we've heard this before. I mean, they've talked about chemical weapons. Uh, You know, every time the Syrian army advances its fight against imperialist-backed terrorist groups, uh, the U.S. cries chemical weapons. And Mm -hmm. like in Iraq, Iraq, weapons of mass destruction, they found there were none, you know. So where's the proof? There is no proof, but there is, um, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons has confirmed that Syria does not have chemical weapons, and they don't have weapons of mass destruction. Um, this is a seven-year war that the U.S. has been, um, waging on the, on Syria, and they haven't won yet. So they're trying to get their allies to, to go with them to, uh, Invade Syria again, but um, they're losing. The, the The empire is crumbling, and they're not.
1: And we have wars uh, not only in Syria, but you also mentioned uh, Yemen. Uh, of course, we've had Afghanistan and Iraq since the since this uh, millennium. We've had continuous, ongoing war.
0: We have an endless war because, you know, we need markets. We, we you know, the there was a study put out by the Defense Department that states, um, you know, the um, Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, they did a lot of research and they came up with the conclusion that there's a fundamental change going on that can't be ignored in our own peril, uh, at our own peril. That's a quote from them. Another quote from their study was that the international order established by the U.S. after World War II is collapsing. Throughout the study, they used words like uh, global hegemony is unraveling and fraying and in decline. The study also said that um, the US is threatened by an uncontrolled spread of information. So um, access to technology is undermining the advantages that imperialism had in the past to to wage these discrete, secret, covert wars and spread uh, propaganda trying to convince the American people that that Saddam Hussein is a dictator. seventy two percent of the people in uh, Syria voted for Hussein and they have the right to self-determination, and we do you mean, not. I mean them. Assad. I mean Assad. We don't have the right to go in and bomb them. You know, they have the right to self-determination. Well, I heard As-
1: Assad may be a bad guy, but uh, the, the U.S. getting involved is, does not like make it better. Right. Anyway, so this is going to happen. The rally is going to happen all over the country, including in Portland tomorrow again at 1 o'clock. Yes. What should people bring besides perhaps rain gear?
0: An open mind and some questions and, and their enthusiasm to try to uh, turn this imperialism around.
1: Now, I want a website for um, perhaps your website or information about this. Where would they go?
0: We're on Workers' World Party PDX on Facebook.
1: Workers' World Party Party PDX. Thank you. Lynn Neely, thanks so much for being with me.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot.
1: We're going to go right now um, on the phone to Jeremy Roth Cushell. Jeremy, are you there? I'm here. Jeremy, welcome to the beloved community.
2: Thank you so much for having me, John.
1: On May 9, 2016, the Kansas City Public Library hosted an event called Truman and Israel, featuring the Washington Institute for Near East Policy distinguished fellow Dennis Ross and sponsored by the library, the Truman Library Foundation, and the Jewish Community Center in Kansas City uh there was a shooting at the jewish community center in kansas city several years back and so the library agreed to allow off-duty police to be on the scene Uh, two conditions were set by the library nobody could be forcibly removed for asking an unpopular question and nobody could be removed at all without consulting the library staff who would only allow an individual to be removed if staff concluded they were an imminent threat so, in addition to off-duty police officers, private security guards uh, associated with uh, the JCF, the Jewish Community Center, were present. And in spite of these precautions, a local peace activist, Jeremy roth was removed. And when the librarian, Steve Woolfolk, tried to sort things out, he was arrested. So, and then uh, you, Jeremy, were subsequently arrested for trespassing and resisting arrest. So, what? Uh, tell us in your words what, what happened uh, on that day, May, May 9th, 2016.
2: Yes, as you said, that there was this previous event, a shooting outside of a Jewish uh, community center two years earlier, I believe, by a known uh, entity, a a neo-Nazi white supremacist type who had been a former FBI informant, and after that, the the local organization on this evening of May 9th, it was the Jewish Community Foundation was the sponsor. They were then brought in a, a new security director that had been brought in by uh, Homeland Security and an organization called SCAN, Secure Community Network, that has been called by the, uh, the head of the uh, Jewish Federations of North America as, quote, our Jewish Homeland Security. And uh, this man, Blair Hawkins, was actually in charge of the security that evening because the library felt sympathy towards the Jewish community in the wake of those shootings and wanted everyone to feel safe. But they also have uh, their own ethical and legal commitments to the First Amendment, and so they wanted to make sure that it was understood that people would not have – Force used against them because of speech, viewpoint. And that's ultimately what ended up happening. And I had RSVP'd to this event. Uh, like you said, it's Truman in Israel, uh, by, Jew- by uh, co sponsored by Jewish Community Foundation, Truman Library Institute, and the Kansas City Public Library. And it was meant to celebrate the anniversary of the birth of Israel and Truman's quick recognition. Of it, and after the uh, presentation by Dennis Ross, who, like you said, uh, is part of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. It's a spin-off organization of the of AIPAC, the American Israel Public Affairs a Committee, seen as the most foremost organization of the Israel lobby, and has been involved in spy scandals. And Ross himself is seen in many ways as. Uh, he's sort of seen as in the middle, but he's actually has a fairly harsh foreign policy when it comes down to it. And so after his presentation, they opened up the floor for questions and answers, and I was the first one up at the microphone, and I brought in a few pieces of uh, historical facts that I had just actually become aware of, one of them, which is that according to Truman's Daughters Margaret's book, the Stern Gang, also known as Lehi, one of the uh, proto-Israeli uh, terrorist groups that was involved also in the Deir Yassin massacre, of which I believe we just passed the uh, 70th anniversary of more than 100 innocent Palestinians slaughtered by aspects of the Irgun and the Stern Gang. The Stern Gang had sent mail bombs to Truman uh, in the year before Truman recognized uh, Israel. And so I brought that into the mix. I brought the King David Hotel bombing, uh, in which I believe Irgun was also involved. Uh, it was uh, proto-Israeli terrorist forces targeting uh, mainly British forces, uh, including people who were murdered were also Jews uh, in that. So, And then finally I finished it up with by putting on the table my awareness of things like September 11th, And then I claimed as a a Jewish American that both the governments that operate in my name have a long-term history of utilizing uh, basically state-sponsored terrorism, including against the people that they're meant to protect— jews and americans let's say in terms of the united states and israel and utilizing it for their own geopolitical interests at home and abroad they said when are we going to stand up and be uh, ethical jews and americans
1: so you're giving this uh uh response to dennis ross and and while you and what and so while you're talking what happened
2: I was, there was a, a, a back and forth with Dennis Ross a little bit, and he threw in a couple, uh, lines, a couple of zinger lines, uh, including you're allowed your own uh, uh, opinion, but you're not allowed your own facts based on uh, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And uh, and then I, I leaned back to the microphone to respond and put some facts that I knew about the apparent fraudulent nature of the war on terror and its use in... Uh, 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 perpetrating aggressive warfare based on the uh, overall fraud of September 11th, to put that on the record. And then I was grabbed from behind on my upper left arm with no apparent warning by the head of security that I identified before, Blair Hawkins, who has a very deep background, actually, in terms of the national s- security so called apparatus. He apparently was uh, guarding uh, Karzai in Afghanistan after the U.S. invasion there and has worked all throughout the national security apparatus before being given this job at the uh... with the jewish community in the kansas city area okay so and he, he, he grabbed
1: you to remove you and then what happened
2: and then a uh... off-duty detective uh... named brent parsons joined into that as the librarian steve Wufolk, who had actually helped organize the event had allowed the uh jewish community foundation to bring the extra security in the first place came in to remind them of the setting here and that there were rules at the library about grabbing people and that uh you know that we could handle this in a nonviolent fashion so he and the librarian
1: then didn't think you were doing anything wrong or being disruptive or an imminent threat
2: no he he thought that it was completely in line with what they uh Allow and even encourage, in terms of vigorous discourse, at the library. And I was also record. I, mean, I had my. I passed my camera off to my friend uh, Greg mccarran who was filming. And I. I. We were actually searched on the way in. There was only maybe. There was only a woman that I believe were searched on the way in of over five hundred people. And I had RSVP'd for the event, so there is some indication that I was actually targeted. For extra attention and uh, search on the way in. So when I was searched by a uniformed sergeant of the Kansas City Police Department on the way in, I made it very clear that I'm on the public record of asking questions of public officials that some of them find uncomfortable, and that I intended to do both, uh, pursue both uh, speech and press uh, functions at, at the event that evening. And I was then allowed in saying, well, you're fully within your right to do that. So it was they knew security knew that I was both had a background and that I had intention that evening to pursue both speech and press functions, not to mention the assembly that was happening in place so and so, so then they bustled
1: yeah go ahead so so go ahead and they, they, they they eventually they also so they they hustled you out of the room, did they?
2: Yes, yeah, so then i I made it very clear that I was willing to leave if they asked me at that point because. Uh, And I also said I was very clear that I did not want to be touched. So I said, get your hands off of me. I will leave if asked. You can ask me to leave. And at that point, uh, the librarian had intervened in a nonviolent way to basically so that everybody had gotten their hands off of me. And so we finally then walked out. I I was not being grabbed at that point. And then we went and grabbed my stuff and we all uh, then uh, left the venue. And moved to the lobby, where we were then confronted without uh, identification by uh, police officers who were in the lobby. And uh, and then the librarian, Steve Wufalk, was grabbed from behind with no warning or any announcement of any type of arrest going and, on. And these and these, these
1: police saying, here are, are on-duty police by this time, right? Or
2: these are all off-duty police they're all off-duty there, there were two uniformed off-duty police and there was uh one uh uh, un, uh non-uniformed off-duty police and then this private security guard were part of this four member security so-called contingent so in the end both both
1: you and um the librarian steve wolfork were, were ended up being arrested and the charges were pressed and uh and and they continue to press these charges uh, right the city
2: the, the city continued to press the charges until last year. So we were both under indictment for over a year. Uh, they they eventually dropped the charges on me. It looked like it looked like it was in response to me pursuing uh, evidence that I that was uh, okayed by the judge to gain, in terms of discovery evidence, about emails uh, from the prosecutor's office, potentially in relationship to some of the uh, other parties, including the Jewish Community Foundation. And in response to that, there was a, uh, some type of uh, non-official agreement to drop the charges, but ultimately, they even escalated the charges against uh, Steve Woolfolk, the librarian, even in the midst of when he was getting national awards and his library was getting national awards for their protection of basic free speech rights and the importance of, of some of the program that they programming they were doing. And then Steve actually ultimately went to trial in last September of 2017, and he was uh, acquitted on all three uh, charges.
1: Jeremy Roth-Crushell, if you're just joining us, is my guest. He's talking about uh, being arrested in the library for exercising his free speech rights. Now, so the case right now, so both of the charges by the city against you and the librarian have been dismissed. Uh, Do you have a civil case going on?
2: Not yet, but I am uh, investi- investigating that, and uh, that is in process um, because there was very fundamental uh free speech rights that were violated, uh, fundamental press rights that were violated, and even assembly. And there was some even indication that there was some bias towards what type of activist and what kind of Jewish person I I am, uh, because even in the police report by the arresting officer, a detective, uh, Brent Parsons, And I forgot to mention that the the commonality between the two main uh, actors here in terms of this so-called arrest, uh, the head of security, Hawkins, and the off-duty detective, Parsons, was not only had they both been sent to Israel on training uh, junkets of some sort, but they also both met at the local Department of Homeland Security Fusion Center. So it it, it appears that there was some type of targeting involved. And so on the police report by uh, Parsons about my alleged crimes, he actually uh, uh, put a a bias code, a 21 anti-Jewish bias code on my uh, trespassing charge and basically said that he believed that I was driven by anti-Jewish bias. Even though I very clearly identified myself as a Jewish American, and I said nothing that would, uh, you know, be uh, could be seen as anything about Jewish people per se, I referenced very specific uh, geopolitical concepts in my in my statement and in my question. Things like uh, geopolitical cause, state, state-sponsored terrorism, the United States, Israel. So th- there is also apparently some type of uh religious political dynamic that's been uh uh p- packaged into this violation of the totality of the first amendment
1: jeremy roth Kuschel, my guest on the beloved community well, look at the uh, bigger picture here. Is there a connection uh, between uh, censorship and uh, perhaps uh, between Zionism itself? I'm thinking of the BDS movement and uh, laws that are being uh, posted to try to restrict uh, boycotting uh, Israel. Um, for example, even here at, uh, in Portland, the smear campaign against my potential guest, Kevin Barrett, um, and this library incident, is the censoring of views critical of Israel on the rise?
2: It really does appear that way, and uh, I as a Jewish, I call myself a Jewish-American patriot of conscience, and I would say that Kevin, Dr. Kevin Barrett, who was ousted from the American uh, Academy for questioning Zionist narratives, uh, would be called a Muslim-American patriot of, of conscience. And there is an escalation of using charges of anti-Semitism. So in a way, I was actually accused of an anti-Semitically driven uh, uh, trespassing charge, even though the the ethical core of my question is, why do we allow states that operate in our names as Jews and Americans to kill the people, including Jews and Americans, in terms of staged uh, fraudulent state-sponsored terrorism to pursue uh, dynamics of power. And it's very clear in terms of what we've been seeing in terms of the escalation uh, in in Texas in the wake of the hurricane. We saw people who were uh, going to have to sign a commitment to not uh, participate in Palestinian solidarity through boycott, divestment, sanction in order to get uh, uh, federal help. I believe that was maybe eventually done away with. But here in Kansas, we had a young member. Uh, and a night woman math teacher who was not going to be allowed to uh, get a contract to teach math at the state level because she was also unwilling because of her own conscience to sign the pledge not to uh, participate in boycott divestment sanctions. The good side of that is the ACLU has participated with her legally and pushing that back, uh, back to the state legislature here in Kansas so that individuals can't be targeted in that way but it is clear over the history of the zionist movement that not only is there the weapon of the charge of anti-semitism used to try to suppress both uncomfortable facts but also some of the truth-tellers that speak those uncomfortable facts. But if you actually look at the very origins of some of the early, early Zionist leaders, they also welcomed real anti-Semitism, real anti-Jewishness as one of their best friends. And this is also why we see that in the early days of Israel, aspects of what we might call the Israeli deep state staged terror bombings all throughout the Middle East against Jewish targets to try to drive Jewish people to Israel. And so one last thing on this point is that we also see the allegedly uh, grassroots Jewish organizations, such as the so-called Anti-Defamation League, which is actually uh, an arm of the uh, global uh, Masonic organization Bene B'rith, that had high-level elements that were involved in uh, in the Confederate intelligence and leadership, and apparently helped set up the Ku Klux Klan in the wake of the Civil War. And then in the 20th century, we see the so-called Anti-Defamation League being involved in spying on people like Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., the the most important proponent of the concept of the important concept of the beloved community. And this was only. 30 years later that Henry Schwarzschild, a former ADL employee, uh, confirmed to the San Francisco Weekly that the ADL had spied on King because they thought that he was a loose cannon. He was a Baptist preacher, and nobody could quite sure know what he was going to do next. And there is even some uh, inkling that the, he and, and some of his compatriots were turning towards Arab and Palestinian solidarity. Uh, in the years running up to his, uh, his state-sponsored murder, as found in a civil suit by the King family lawyer, um, uh, Dr. William Pepper, in the late 90s. And last thing about the ADL is that they, they, so, they say that they speak on behalf of the Jewish people. When I was accused of, of, of a crime that I did not commit, in order to try to silence my ethical speech about difficult historical facts about not only my own country, the United States, but the Jewish state of Israel, no n- no Jewish organization came to reach out to me, and especially the ADL did not. And the ADL has been found to have been involved in spying on not only on uh, Palestinian solidarity activists, but also on anti-apartheid activists in the 80s and using uh, uh, operatives inside of the San Francisco Police Department to get out information on anti-racist activists, anti-apartheid activists. So this is really what it looks like, that many of the charges of anti-Semitism are really on behalf of of what has become an intensely violent and illegitimate uh, use of state power from israel
1: jeremy rothkashel uh we're just we're just about out of time uh, my guest here on uh on, and the library however back to back to that story um was was awarded what the lemony snicket award right for pr- uh, protecting free speech
2: Yes, c- correct. They won the Lemony Snicket Award for, uh, yeah, for, I think, for courageous protection of free speech, and they very much deserve it. The, and uh, Steve Woolfolk, the librarian, has been an actor of very good faith in all of this and has told the truth all along the way, and immediately all he wanted was an apology for an apparent misunderstanding. But the forces surrounding the arrest and who sponsored the arrest have not only been uh, unwilling to offer up a simple apology about their obvious uh, disruption, and violent disruption of a peaceful library event by their so-called security uh, people, but have doubled down on not telling the truth about what actually happened.
1: Jeremy Rothkushel, thank you for being with me. Now, if uh, people want to find out information about you and what, all, the, all the things that you've talked about, do you have a website?
2: They can go uh, look at The Antidote on YouTube, A-N-T-E-D-O-T-E, and check me out with Dr. Kevin Barrett every Friday uh, morning on False Flag Weekly News on No Lies Radio.
1: in the studio is 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 a friend of mine and a colleague brett webb mitchell he's uh presbyterian minister pastor of community of the pilgrims presbyterian church here in portland all right here's the deal does the world need another church or should i put it another way does (laughs) does portland need the community of pilgrims
3: (laughs) I think uh, Portland uh, needs uh, the community of Pilgrims Presbyterian Fellowship because what we're trying to do and be is uh, a community that is following Jesus, but embracing all. And I think what's uh, unique is that we're really struggling and striving and seeking to to encourage everyone to come. Um, There's a history in Portland um, of being a largely white community, and so we tend to be In many of our Presbyterian churches, we tend to include many people who happen to be Anglo and uh, straight and happen to be middle class. And so what we're trying to do— We Presbyterians are a bit waspish. We are. We are. We have that edge to ourselves. And so what we're trying to do in starting a new faith community is to— Uh, create a community and relationships. And from that, uh, our worshiping life, our life of service, our life of prayer, our life of being in relationship with one another grows. And so that's, that's what's kind of been unique is that we're starting afresh, um, being openly gay, uh, welcoming people who are LGBTQ and straight, welcoming people from uh, all races, ethnicities, nationalities, uh, welcoming of all ages, socioeconomic brackets, those who are coming from the hearing community and those from the deaf community, as well as those who self-identify as able-bodied or disabled. We're welcoming all, and it's giving us a fresh new start, and it's something that, um, it's it's kind of neat because again we're building a community and from that we worship we serve we we take care of others you know um, and there
1: are many uh, open churches I, I, I could um, consider myself a pastor of one but um, I'm not an openly gay Presbyterian minister and I don't know how many there are uh, there's, in Portland.
3: There's, there's one. There's one,
1: and, that, and I'm, I'm looking <laughs> at him. That's it. So, I mean, but that's important, right? right. I mean, to have a community, and that gives the the movement credibility.
3: It does. And I think that's what we're trying to do is in the Presbyterian Church, what we've been able to do with the change in our book of order, we've been able to go, to include um, LGBTQ people who are openly so, and in relationship, uh, married relationship, and, and without fear of any kind of retribution. So what the United Methodist Church is trying to do now, uh, especially in this, the Oregon-Idaho uh, United Methodist Church Conference, is also be inclusive of all. And um, there's a change afoot. I mean, this this conference, the Oregon-Idaho United Methodist Church Conference, has been on the cutting edge of being inclusive. Uh, Wilshire United Methodist Fellowship uh, is welcoming of, uh, a largely urban Indian population. Hughes Memorial has served a historically African-American neighborhood. Um, uh, there are two Hispanic ministry churches last... Las Naciones, as well as Epworth, the United Methodist Church, a Japanese-American church in Northeast Portland, and so, and Tongan Ministry. So this conference has had a kind of edginess to it, has, has kind of been called by Christ to follow a gospel that's all-inclusive. So alongside the uh, largely ethnic, diverse uh, congregations that they've set up, they were gifted with some uh, funds from the Collins Foundation, who challenged the United Methodist Church uh, to be be more inclusive, to welcome LGBTQ people, both in the role, not only as members of their congregations, but, but also in the role of leadership. And so that's kind of where I came into this, is that the Collins Foundation made it possible for me to fulfill a role that had been uh, open this year, and that was to be the LGBTQ advisory coordinator in working with churches and working with clergy and working with the out queer clergy here in the united methodist oregon idaho conference and so in a sense john it's kind of been a wonderful blend of being a, a a minister that's able to serve two different denominations but with the same goal of being inclusive of all well, I was going to talk
1: about that—that that mixing, that
3: blending of two different
1: kinds of materials, right. Presbyterian and Methodist.
3: Right, right. Well, I, <laughs> and what's nice is I grew up as a United Methodist, and uh, so I have a background in that area. And taught at Duke Divinity School, and had uh, even more background. And uh, my my partner himself was a uh, former United Methodist uh, wannabe uh, clergy person, and so. I, I have that history in my own background, and so that's kind of what made it an interesting kind of fit. Was to be called by the United Methodist Church to go ahead and serve in this capacity as being a coordinator and and to advocate and to be an advisor to the Oregon Idaho Conference in welcoming all. And it's 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 new because even in the structure of the Presbyterian Church USA, there is no position said position, nor is there in the ELC, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, United Church of Christ, and so on. Oh, that's
1: important. This is the only. Um, the Denomination. The Methodists are a conference here. Not even the denomination. Right. It's just this conference right. that has had such a position.
3: Right. This is the only conference. And and just to remind, remember, this is a uh, the United Methodist Church is a worldwide uh, denomination, and so it is it is incredibly brave of them to have an openly gay minister who is there in a role for those who are uh, self identified as lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, and questioning
1: final question there uh, about uh, information how people might be able to find your congregation
3: right what they can do if they want to find and join us with the community of pilgrims presbyterian fellowship is just go on to communityofpilgrims.com uh for more information uh, regarding the united methodists go on to umoi.org and they can find my uh, information there and what we're doing all right brett webb mitchell thanks for being with me thanks for all you're doing i appreciate it john when i come
1: back i'm going to speak with nicole carrera she is a leading speaker on shia islam and uh, she uh, also uh, graduated from hartford seminary uh, in christian muslim relations and she's working on her phd and she's going to be talking about christian muslim relations as well as the legacy of imam hussein next on the beloved community This is the Beloved Community. I'm John Shuck, and I'm on the phone with Nicole Carreri. She is a public speaker on behalf of Shia Islam. Uh, in her bio, she writes that her work stems out of the gap she felt and observed for the English-speaking Muslims in the West to make sense of religion in their context and their lived realities. She's interested in an intellectual and inspirational approach to faith and articulates a practical theology with a sensibility for social, gender, and ethical justice. Nicole is also committed to inter and intra-faith work. She completed a master's degree in Islamic studies and Christian-Muslim relations at Hartford Seminary and has been accepted into the PhD program uh, in the religion department at Boston University. Welcome, Nicole, to uh, the BLOVE community.
4: Thank you and welcome, and I'm really glad to be welcomed, rather, to this program. It's really great to join you all.
1: You converted to Islam, is that right? Would you would you, would you be willing to share some of that story?
4: Well, that's the most common question every convert gets, and it's one that really speaks to um, the heart of what Islam is about. Islam is really something that is open to anyone and any place and time and anyone can become Muslim. And and one of the goals of Islam, or one of the ideals, is to be part of what's called this global Ummah, or this global community. And so um, many people come to the religion, like myself, with the hopes of being part of this grand idea and this kind of ideal um, sense of community, really. So um, that is a very common question. Um, one of the things that brought me to this space was the theology. It really made sense to me. And um, and Shia Islam in particular uh, was was very relevant in the sense that I found out about um, different individuals like Ali, who we consider the successor to the Prophet Muhammad, and Imam Hussein's story in particular, and I felt that these individuals really represented people who tried to stay on that path of Islam, and they became the oppressed, and I really understood and felt for their story.
1: On April 28th, uh, you're going to be speaking at the, the Red Lion Inn in Bellevue, Washington for Hussein Day, and I'm speaking with you at that conference. That's how I got connected with you, and I'm excited about meeting you there. But tell us a little bit about Imam Hussein. Uh, who was he, and, and, and why is he important to you?
4: Well, it's a very uh, important story, and it's one that even many Muslims who consider themselves Sunni today don't even know much about. So we see that just about 50 years after the death of the prophet, and we often say, may peace and blessings be upon him, uh, there are political battles going on for power and control, and it turns out that this group called the Umayyads, who were actually the descendants of one of the arch rivals of the prophet during the prophet's lifetime, ended up becoming those in power. Um, and in the process, the people of the community wanted Hussein to come and be their spiritual leader or imam, which is the word that you've used a couple of times. And so the people in the town of Kufa in what we know as Iraq today invited Hussein and his family and his uh, companions to come to the city for him to establish himself as the spiritual leader and imam of that town. And in the process of his journey, he was ambushed by uh, the leader of the time and the troops that surrounded him. Um, the leader at that time was Yazid ibn Muawiyah ibn Sufyan, Sufyan again being that original arch rival of the Prophet. And not only was he ambushed, but they were cut off from water, they were um, maltreated, they were forced to give what is called bayah or allegiance to Yazid to, to um, basically give their support to him as the spiritual leader of islam of the time and they refused to do that because they felt that yazid was not the legitimate representative of the religion and so they stood their ground and fought a very dramatic battle against quite a huge opposition and in that period which we call ashura uh or the the day of the event is ashura the first 10 days of the month of Muharram. Um, is when he and his companions and family were attacked, uh, they were martyred, and then those who remained alive, mainly the women and children, and some other male relatives, were kept as captives, and they were paraded through various towns. And basically there was a huge political agenda against them, saying that these were usurpers uh, who were were rebels, and it was actually the sister of Imam hussein Zainab, who I intend to be speaking about at the conference quite a bit, who made sure that this political message was clear, that they were the family of the Prophet, that they had been the victims of oppression, and that they were there to support the path of Islam and not be rebels
1: and uh, one of the uh, attributes then of of Hussein and those of you've mentioned was their uh fearless courage for for uh standing up for what is uh, for what they believed is to be right is that is that would you say that's the the case oh
4: absolutely and that that's what's so enduring about the story of Imam Hussein um, that's the so, so, so inspiration to to many people you know Gandhi was inspired by the uh, 72 martyrs who died with um, with him on the plains of Karbala, and he actually used that number, 72, for his famous salt marches against the uh, imperialistic you know, British Empire. So that's fascinating. Uh, we also have many other references from historians. Um, Brown is one of them, famous historians from England, who also quotes the story of Imam Hussein and says how how much sacrifice he went through and how it's so moving what he did, even though the odds were completely against him, how he stood his ground. Um, he truly was like the brave heart of his time. He really stood up and stood uh, for his principles, for the protection of the religion of Islam, and for it not to be usurped by individuals who were simply playing political games.
1: I'm speaking with Nicole Carreri on The Beloved Community. She's a public speaker on behalf of Shia Islam. Now, you have a master's degree in Christian-Muslim relations at uh, Hartford Seminary. That's a Disciples, I think, a Disciples of Christ Seminary? I'm not sure what the what the affiliation is it's there.
4: It's a non-denominational seminary, and I'm, oh, I'm okay. going to be graduating this May. Um, oh, this May you're,
1: May you're going to graduate. Post- well, congratulations. Yeah,
4: Thank you. Just finished my thesis. Um, but one of the most uh, interesting things about Hartford Seminary is our interfaith um, commitment. And there are a number of different programs, including my master's program, and the fact that we have Muslim students in a, an Islamic studies program at the Institute, as well as Christian denominations and Jewish uh, uh, denomination as well.
1: So that was a positive experience then, uh, studying with uh, Christians and Jews?
4: Absolutely. I mean, it's. I think in our time and place, we are redefining what various religious denominations really mean, and when you read my bio, that's one of the things that I personally am committed to, and I think uh, people who um, are graduates of Hartford Seminary are committed to as well, and that is making religious life a practical experience, making it relevant, and making it meaningful today, and in an interfaith and a pluralistic society.
1: Who would you say, uh, thinking about your studies, uh, who are examples both within Islam and within Christianity and within Judaism of positive figures uh, in in dialogue and relations who, who should we emulate looking back through our history
4: well that's a pretty <laughs> uh maybe I put you, know, you on the, the spot there right away but yeah but, you sure do. Uh, um you know one of the things that is uh so important is is kind of I, I'm going to just redirects the question is not so much who are good figures, I mean there's plenty of great figures um, in terms of interfaith, it, it's more putting, uh, you know, our religious values into practical um, realities and dealing with current life issues and social justice issues that are pressing today. Um, I mean, it's interesting to note that I'm actually going to be going to BU where Dr. Martin Luther King got his doctoral degree, which I I find fascinating as well. But, of course, the civil rights movement in in and of itself is very much akin to the story of Imam Hussein, And so I feel a lot of parallels there. And, of course, with Dr. King's work um, and what he represented at, at his time and taking faith right into action and taking faith to be the way in which we uphold our principles in real life, putting it into practice. So not just worshipping or repeating rituals in private for the sake of ritualistic, uh, you know, uh, tradition and or what we believe might be requirements, but to actually translate that into something practical. And I think that really fits well with the idea of this event we're going to be attending, which is the uh, Imam Hussein, um, you know, the Hussain Day, which is really geared towards being this interfaith event where people can come together and talk about how we have shared values, what our commitments are towards social justice, and how we articulate that from within our particular traditions.
1: And uh, also, you mentioned a couple of times, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that more. There are a number of of YouTube videos in which you speak about the uh, personal ethical aspects of of uh, bringing your, your faith to life. Can, can you talk a little bit about that what what what, how do you see that connection between spirituality and 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 personal ethics or and social ethics
4: well it's about being consistent right i mean it's one thing to talk about beliefs it's one thing to have this personal private relationship with god or to be uplifted or to fulfill obligations religious obligations but it's an entirely uh... other thing it seems to um... to actually live that in a way that you are exemplifying these principles so um, in in our tradition, in fact, and this is this is a good way to talk about what this event is that we have coming up. Yes. Within the Shia tradition, it, it, it's a, there's a long history of commemorating this tragedy um, and the, the martyrdom of Imam Hussein through a number of different acts. One is what's called the medjus, where the the events of the of the day or of that that those particular ten days are recounted, and those who are attending those events or those you know lectures will then weep and grieve and mourn. They'll either do some type of self-flagellation, and you'll often see photos of this online, um, and other ways expressing their grief. So that's one way in which people have done that. They've also done processions, and this is a tradition that's been going on for about uh, 600 years or more. And what's interesting is that today, the youth and other members of the community say, you know, we don't want to just sit around and and do, um, you know, flagellation. We don't want to just cry. We want to put the principles of fighting for the underdog. We want to put the principles of fighting for social justice. We want to put these principles of service and servitude of, of like that, that Hussein exemplified into practice. So that's why you see events like Hussein Day and other organizations like Who is Hussein, where they're really committed towards, doing acts of service, whether it be blood drive, food drive, um, working with the needy, um, providing shelters, and other kinds of humanitarian aid. <clears throat> these are, have been the specific focus of organizations like this. So you can see that the Shia of today are in many ways saying, I want to go a little bit further than just commemorating. I don't want to just commemorate. I want to do something about it. I want to live these principles.
1: Let's just take a second. We have a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to ask you uh, uh, about gender and Islam. Islam is certainly caricatured in the West as as repressive to women. Why does this caricature exist? <laughs> Who's creating it and perpetuating it, and what can we do about it?
4: Well, that's a complicated discussion, and hence that's where I'm going with my PhD. But let's just say that <clears throat> today's Muslim women uh, and Muslim Uh, and communities are looking for ways in which to understand gender in an ethically based way. And we know that patriarchy and misogyny has no boundaries. It doesn't have religious boundaries, it doesn't have socioeconomic boundaries, it doesn't have cultural boundaries. You'll find the same types of behavior where men are perceived as superior um, in whatever ways, whether it be physically, whether it be spiritually, in all kinds of traditions and in all kinds of walks of life. In fact, we have uh, still to achieve equal pay here in the United States, which the other mm-hmm. day was Equal Pay Day. Um, so there are many ways in which we see <clears throat> patriarchy and misogyny that exists in the world. It's not unique to Islam, and it's not unique to Muslim communities. But what's fascinating about the story of Hussein is that his sister, Zainab, was a very central figure in these events, and in the remembrance of the events, and in the political change, even at the time of the tragedy. So her speeches and her presence in the courts of the rulers of the time, one of the governors, Ibn Ziyad, uh, and then the the leader, you know, the uh, caliph, uh, Yazid. So she spoke out against these individuals, and these speeches are recorded and commemorated. So the fact that a woman was present, vocal, and completely politically active, and created change, political change, because it was through her activity, through her speaking out, that got these prisoner herself and the other prisoners, to be released, um, is a fascinating example of women's presence within Islam. In fact, when you go back a little bit further you see that when Imam Hussein even went to Karbala, he brought his entire family, all ages, all genders. There were people from different faiths who accompanied him, and there were other um, people of different ethnic backgrounds. It was a very diverse group. And I think we can look back to that example and, and use that as a way to define our ethics today as a Shia Muslim community.
1: Nicole Carreri, thank you so much uh, for this, for being with me. Uh, how can people find you online?
4: Well, I'm on all social media, and soon my website and sunny Cultivating Our Humanity, will be up, and it will have a blog post, it will have links to lectures of mine, as well as um, a special project that I'm going to be working on called a Sexual Ethics Project. So I hope that my, your listeners will get a chance to meet me there, and they're certainly welcome to find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook.
1: And, of course, uh, if they happen to be in, in, in Bellevue, Washington, on April 28th, too. So, Nicole Carreri, thank you so much uh, for being with me and, and for your important work. And congratulations you. on, your, uh, on your graduation in May and, and your upcoming Ph.D. program. I hope that goes well for you.
4: Thank you so much. Thank you. Look forward to meeting you as well, and good luck.
1: And this has been the Blob Community. We're going to wrap it up. My guests have been. I wish to thank Nicole Carreri, Jeremy roth Cushell lynn neely of the workers world party and brett webb mitchell and uh this uh check us out again on the second friday of every month at nine o'clock i'm john shuck this is the beloved community on kboo